While we are still standing, I would like to offer our scripture lesson for the sermon today. But first, I'd like to ask our Lord's blessing upon the reading and hearing of his word. Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you through Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, and we ask that you open our eyes and bore out our ears so that we may see and hear wonderful things from your word and your ways. Lord, also may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. We pray this because we bear your name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our scripture reading will be 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, and I would like to offer something of my own fluid translation of it. You're welcome to follow along. 1 John 5, verse 18. We already know that no one who has God as Father keeps on sinning. But the one who has God as Father is constantly keeping him, and the evil one cannot attach or cling, adhere, or fasten to him. Verse 19, we already know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in, is placed in, is set in the evil one. Verse 20, we already know that the Son of God has come and has made us know this, that we know him, and that we are in him who is true, Jesus Christ. This one is the true God and the life of the age to come. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Thus far the reading of God's word and all of God's children said. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> On my high school campus in the 1970s, a public school, there was a Christian campaign that provided buttons and stickers which said, I found it. I think this was Campus Crusade for Christ that did it before they were called crew. I found it. These buttons were designed to prompt questions, conversations. Those who read the button were supposed to ask, found what? What'd you find? This was to open the door to a conversation about life in Jesus. This reminds me of something that Paul F.M. Zoll wrote about in his book, Who Will Deliver Us?, he mentioned some graffiti scrawl commonly found on walls which boldly assert Christ is the answer. He says, before too long, someone else tags another statement. Well, what's the question? I found it. What were you looking for? Christ is the answer. What's the Question, here's some other questions. Who needs anything anymore? What does anyone need to find? What if I don't have any questions about the life or the death of Christ or even Christ himself? 
What is salvation? Or who needs salvation? Who needs to be saved? And if they need to be saved, then saved from what? In 1986, the pop, rock, and blues horn band, Huey Lewis and the News, popularized a song written by Bruce Hornsby of the Range. The song was titled, Jacob's Ladder. That song included lyrics which questioned the need for salvation. Is it even needed? The song even speaks of avoiding it. The song begins and the singer mentions, I met a fan dancer down in Southside, Birmingham. The singer continues about this dancing girl. This dancing girl was apparently, and here are the lyrics, running from a fat man selling salvation in his hand. Well, apparently the singer-storyteller intervened in this engagement because the lyrics continue. Apparently the, the girl got away and the lyrics continue. Now he's trying to save me, but I'm doing all right, the best that I can. So the girl is running from salvation. She's avoiding it. And the guy, I have no need. I'm doing just fine. Salvation and sin and being saved, for many, these are <clears throat> dusty designations, ancient terms, having nothing to do with my finely manicured lawn or life, a life filled with everything I need. Go ahead, Kenny, roll your logins. I'm all right. Don't nobody worry about me. So when it comes to sin and salvation, we likely encounter at least two kinds of people. We will encounter either those with no concern about such things at all. It's not even a blip on their radar. They never even think about sin or salvation, unless, of course, they are running from someone selling salvation in their hand. And then there are those who are constantly concerned over sin, salvation, acceptance. It seems to be all that they think about and now that we have come to the end of 1 John, we find these two kinds of people are found here as well. While there are some who are deeply concerned over sin, both the guilt and the grip of sin, there are others who are just fine. Lying down or living in the manger or the stable of the evil one. Four final verses, we're going to take a look at them. And we're going to wrap up First John. 
Verses 18, 19, and 20 begin with the words, Now we know, and what John means by that is, in conclusion, we already know this. I'm going to summarize the points I've been making. We already know. So back to my fluid translation. Verse 18, just the beginning of verse 18. We already know that no one who has God as Father keeps on sinning. John has been saying something like this throughout the letter. The children of God, they have God as their Father. They are the ones with the life of God, or as he says, the seed of God. They're in the family of God, and they do not keep, they do not keep on sinning. Stop right there. Really? But what in the world does this mean? You're the children of God. Do you keep on sinning? Yes. Are you in the family of God and you still sin? Yes. There are some in this world who don't care at all about sin, and there are others who all they can do is think about it. What in the world does John mean here? Some will say, well, yes, they continue in sin, but they confess the sin and are cleansed from the sin. Yes. We're not to continue in sin, but when we do, we have a mediator, Christ, who cleanses us. Yes. Does John mean that the children of God don't relish in or rejoice in a life of sin? But then when we're honest, we think there are times when I have actually chosen sin because I wanted that. I chose the pleasures of sin for a season of various lengths. Maybe John means, yes, they still sin, but it's not their identity. There are some that are consumed with the knowledge of their own sin. Lutheran theologian Rod Rosenblatt speaks of people who may have this inner soliloquy going on in their heads. They start talking out loud about this. I'll read it. There may have been grace for me when, as a sinner, I initially came to Christ. But now, having been given the Spirit of God, I fear that things have gotten worse in me rather than better. I have horribly abused all of God's good gifts to me. I was so optimistic in the beginning when the pastor told me that Christ outside of me, dying for me, freely saved me by his death and that the Holy Spirit now, dwelling in me, would aid me in following Christ. I looked forward to so much, but it has all gone badly. Others have no doubt done what God equipped them to do, but not I. I have used grace and Christ's shed blood as an excuse. Yes, they still sin, the children of God. 
Yes, they confess. Yes, they turn to Christ. Yes, they continue to grow. So confess and Christ and continue to grow. Yes, but what about the fact that I keep on sinning? 1 John is a letter of pastoral affection dealing with cares and concerns in the congregation. Those who have God as their father do not continue on in sin, but I do. John knows this. And so he continues in verse 18. The one who has God as father is constantly keeping him. And the evil one cannot attach or adhere to him. Children of God, you don't continue on in this lifestyle of sin. Something's different, but there's more. John says there is one, the one who has God as father, is constantly keeping you. John says there's another one. Don't read this verse and say, oh, you know what, we've been born of God and uh, we're the ones born of God keeping ourselves. Don't even go there. John's trying to say, yes, you have God as your father, but there's someone else, a, a singular one, the one who has God as father. It's a reference to Jesus. So when it comes to dealing with sin, our sin, and having any confident standing before the Lord, we are not left in our own pit of despair or slough of despond. There's a greater confidence Yes, we share the same Father. Jesus is the Son of God, and we are sons of God or children of God. Perhaps you'll remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has come out of the tomb, and Mary sees the risen Jesus and thought he was the gardener. And so she very respectfully says, Sir, can you tell me where you laid him and I will gather him? All it took was one word, a, a name from Jesus. The risen Lord is standing there. Mary does not recognize him. And Jesus says, Mary. Her eyes are opened. She turns to the Lord and then she clings to him. She adheres to him. She attaches herself to him. She fastens herself to the Lord. Teacher, Rabboni. And then Jesus says, Mary, Mary, don't cling to me. Don't fasten yourself to me. Don't adhere to me. I am going to my father and your father. The end of verse 18 is telling us that Jesus is the one who has God as his father. We're in his family, and he is the one who is keeping us such that the evil one cannot fasten, cling to, or adhere to us. John is saying that for the evil one to get to you, it has to go through Jesus. I'm reminded of Paul's phraseology in Colossians 3, that we are, that our life is hidden with Christ in God. 
So John continues in verse 19. We already know something else. We already know that we are of God and the whole world lies, is placed in the evil one. By the way, that word lies in is the same word of Jesus being laid in the manger. That is why my fluid translation says that they are content being placed in the stable or the manger of the evil one. Same exact word. Some are fine there. They rest there. They have snacks there. They sit around and they take naps there. You're either in the sun or the evil one. There's a great divide. There are some who don't care at all about sin or deliverance, and there are others who are greatly concerned about it. Verse 20, we already know this as well. We already know that the Son of God has come and has made us know something, made us know this, that we know him and that we are in him who is true, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and the life of the age to come. We're in his family. Now, as John nearly ends this letter, he picks up a theme which has traveled through the bloodstream of 1 John. The centrality of Christ. That was John's concern for them, and it should be for us as well. There is a wondrous Christ-centeredness to all of this. You can almost hear the questions in the background. Who, who do men say that I am? <clears throat> who do you say that I am? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this that can forgive sins? Some people will answer, I don't really care. The centrality of Christ is what John is concerned about right now as he scratches out the final six words of this letter of affection. Little children, family members, guard yourself from idols. For John, the very first entrance to idolatry is found in Christlessness, finding anything other than Christ or God in which we find our identity, our hope, our imagination. There it is. That was John's immediate concern then, and it's concern now. Christ has given himself in his word. Some say, nah. Christ has given the washing of baptism. Some say, I don't need it. Christ has given his body and blood at the table. And some say, you know, I'm fine. Don't nobody worry about me. Christ and his ways are not another data point for the brain. The life of Christ is a tactile and tangible reality. How did John begin this letter? Oh, that which was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld and touched with our hands, all of this is concerning the word of life. Do you want life? 
So I'm going to start concluding this right now. It is true that some never give a thought about sin or any need beyond what they can achieve for themselves. And such are not troubled by their sin and they don't think they need any relief. But then there are others who seem to be constantly aware of and troubled by their sin. They know they cannot find any relief, especially in themselves. If you doubt it, just try it. Go ahead. Give it a whirl. Yet to remove Christ from this as the one who has God as his Father and who is constantly keeping us so that the evil one cannot adhere to us, once you remove Christ from this, you've got a creeping form of idolatry that will come in or float to the surface. And then we'll begin to think or act like, you know, we've got this. And I have no need for a complete Savior throughout my life. We do not begin with Christ and then press on by our own power. I love the way Paul asked the question. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by your own flesh? Hmm? It's not that we needed a Savior at the beginning, and then later we have become such fine specimens that we no longer need him. Instead, gloriously and in a Christ-centered way, John is saying that our acceptance, our security, and our guarding, even those of us who still sin, is still found outside of ourselves. Simon Peter says we are kept by the power of God. Jesus himself said, of all those the Father gives me, they will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will not cast out. No, you're kept. So, 1 John comes to an end. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. It is John's way of saying, keep yourself from anything which pulls you away from Christ, because there are some who will say, nah, I don't want any of that. And John calls them anti-Christ. No, thank you. John is saying, keep yourself from idols, adhere to Christ, for he is adhering to you. In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.